Let's pray. Father, thank you again that your word is good and faithful, worth more than gold. So please now, would we see what these things mean, how they point us to Jesus, how they give us light for our lives today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So do um, follow with the back of the notices as well, on the back of the notice sheet. Um, if there is one thing that uh, British people know a lot about, it is saying the word sorry. Is that true? I think if you, if you weren't born in the UK, uh, you're bound to have noticed this, I imagine. Um, because I think those of us who were born here may not always realise quite how frequently this word is heard on our lips. Uh, let me give you some examples. If I'm walking down the street and someone bumps into me and it's clearly their fault, I say sorry. Uh, if I need to get someone's attention, I may well begin by saying, uh, sorry, c can I just, um, uh, if I need to squeeze past you or I need to put my bag down a bit near you, I will probably say sorry. Um, and what is going on here is that it turns out British people very often aren't great fans of conflict. Uh, we fear speaking directly about things. Um, so we, when we want something, what we do is we say things like this. We say, do you think possibly we might be able to think about considering keeping the tea bags in a different cupboard or something? And because we fear speaking about things uh, directly... Um, actually, the problem then is that saying the word sorry doesn't actually mean we're apologising for something and we're really owning the problem and we're making amends. It's almost the opposite. It can be a way of sort of ducking the issue, keeping calm, moving on as quickly as possible without embarrassment. And all of that means that we come to verses like we've just heard from Matthew chapter 18, verses 15 to 20, and they may send a bit of a chill down our spine. Because it's hard to get more direct and awkward than if your brother or sister sins, go and point out their faults. And I'm sure it's not just those who were born in the UK who, who might find that hard. We're going to try and dig a little bit deeper into what Jesus is and isn't saying in these verses. We're doing this little three-part series in this chapter, chapter 18, just this chapter. We've been working through Matthew's Gospel bit by bit for quite a few years now. And uh, we've been working with the way that Matthew divides up his material into chunks of action and chunks of teaching. And so there was a chunk of action in chapters 14 to 17. Chapter 18 is a new section of teaching. And you can tell because Matthew has these little markers that he, he, he puts in that kind of mark out when he's doing a new section. So at that time beginning of chapter 18 and then chapter 19 begins when Jesus finished saying these things and you see those kind of repeated phrases throughout the book and they do naturally divide into Jesus kind of giving an extended section of teaching or, or there being a kind of record of lots of things that he did very broadly speaking and so chapter 18 kind of hangs together in this way and it's about Christian community 
And again, it's not random that this is here. The, the, the theme of the previous section, the section of action, was when Jesus talked about founding his church on Peter. Do you remember Peter the Rock, chapter 16, if you were with us? That was the kind of center of, of, of all of that previous chunk of action. And we heard a lot about opposition and problems from outside and, and the kind of the gates of Hades will not prevail against the church that Jesus is building. Um, so uh, that, that was all there. But now, chapter 18, we turn to problems inside the church and how they too can be real threats to the community and how Jesus is acting to preserve his people from the problems they can cause for one another. So last time we heard about greatness, now it's about what happens when things go wrong and people fall into sin in various ways. And at this point, Jesus is saying, you know, don't be British, don't, be, don't just conform to your deferential culture of choice, whatever it is. The church that Jesus is building is too valuable for that. Remember, that's what we've just heard in the previous verses, if you were here last week. Verses 10 to 14, how valuable little ones are to God, such that the 99 can be left in order to go and find the one who's gone astray. This community really matters. So when things go wrong, it matters. And we need to act to put things right. So you can see on the handout, and you can see on the screen as well, we're going to see how the logic of what Jesus is saying breaks down into three things. So first of all, we need to see the goal of what he's saying. The goal is restoring relationships. Restoring relationships. If your brother or sister sins, he says, go and point out their fault. Now, it's worth seeing, first of all, that the word you and a your there is singular. Okay, which means, uh, you know how English doesn't distinguish between you, singular, you, plural. You don't know if you say you, you're talking to one person or many. Um, but in the original language, you do know that. So verses 15 to 17 are you, just one person. And then 18 to 20, he broadens it out to speaking to you, plural, lots of people. So at the start, when he says, if, you, if your brother or sister sins, he's saying to you, individual Christian, if you're individual, you as an individual Christian, if your brother or sister sins, um, then you need to act in this way. It's not, first of all, then the church leader doing this, or, or it's not somebody else, it is you. If you're trusting in Jesus, this is addressed to you, do you see? And uh, what, what then is it, what's the situation if they sin? And sin is broader than just whether they've hurt you personally. It will include that, but it's broader than that. So remember verses 10 to 14 and the, and the little ones. The point is Jesus is saying, have that attitude that God has for little ones when he sees them, one going astray. And little ones, just being in that analogy, a way of describing God's children that he cares about. So every Christian, as it were. God cares about them, and you should too. Okay, but what kind of sin then are we talking about? I guess one of the reasons we, we shy away from these verses, perhaps, if we do, is that we might imagine that Jesus is requiring us to turn into kind of nitpicking criticizers who go around telling everybody off. But that is why we read the first 
reading from the Sermon on the Mount. Again, Jesus' block of teaching, chapters 5 to 7, verses 1 to 5, um, reminding ourselves that these verses here in chapter 18 aren't the only time that Jesus talks about how we speak to others. And actually, it's very clear in chapter 7, if you heard that, that nitpicking criticism is very much out, isn't it? You know, examine yourself, says Jesus. He says, you know, that extraordinary image. Get that massive plank of wood out of your own eye before you go commenting on the sawdust in the other person's eye. So that suggests that the kind of issues that Jesus might have in mind here are, are not sawdust. They're not tiny little things. You have to go around keeping on pointing out every tiny little thing. As we weigh up what those issues might be, well, there's a book, I don't know if you've come across, it's a secular book called Thanks for the Feedback, which makes some um, helpful comments and points, but it includes the observation, which I think is a helpful one, even though it's a sort of secular book, but it includes this help, helpful observation that we tend to judge ourselves by our motives, but others by their impact. We judge ourselves by our motives and others by their impact. And it's kind of obvious why we do that, because we know what our, or we think we know what our motives are. We can justify those things to ourselves, but we obviously don't know that nearly so easily with others. And the result is that we will tend to be quicker to excuse ourselves. We think, oh, no, but there was a perfectly good reason why I did X, Y, or Z. You know, it's perfectly explainable. Um, but then we're also quicker to point out faults in others, because we only see the impact that the action that they did has. And it's helpful, therefore, as we think about what does this mean in practice for us, these verses 15 and so on, it's helpful to think both about motives and impact for both ourselves and others. But having said all that, think of, you know, think of maybe Ten Commandment type sin, issues of honesty, maybe, telling the truth, Issues around greed and theft and money and the idolatry that goes with that. Um, Jesus, I mean, in the, in the Ten Commandments, rather, it talks about murder. I mean, maybe that's a bit extreme, we might hope, but Jesus reminds us that the root of murder is hateful anger. So how we treat others, how we speak about them. And then the Eighth Commandment is about adultery, sexual immorality, faithfulness and contentment in marriage, faithfulness and contentment in singleness. So all these things, then, they are not sawdust issues, but issues that seriously threaten our relationship with God and with one another. And Jesus is saying, love your brother or sister enough to care about their relationship with God. And the goal, he says, again in verse 15, can you see, is that they might listen and be won over. So again, the goal is not kind of finger-wagging rejection, but bringing them back in the same spirit that God leaves the 99 and goes looking for the one. See, it's always easier to say nothing, to do nothing, when we see a brother or sister wandering off in some way. You know, head in the sand, not my problem. Don't want to intrude. Don't want to come across as a hypocritical busybody. Not my place. I hate conflict anyway. It'll be fine. And so on. 
But if we remember, we are a family who are responsible for each other. Each of us individually, you know, we're not a bunch of strangers who happen to share the same space once a week. We can't then ignore problems if we see them. Our goal is restoring relationships. Okay, well, if that is the goal... The question that then follows is, well, what if you go to them and you, 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 you have a conversation and they, it doesn't work and they won't listen? What do you do then? Well, Jesus then gives us, secondly, a process. So the process, secondly, alone with others, with the church. There is a process. And it's worth pointing out, as we've already seen, it begins with going to the person concerned, the process. Okay, it doesn't begin with moaning to somebody else or, or saying one thing to the person's face and another behind their back or gossiping about what someone has done and trying to disguise it as a prayer request, for example. It begins with going to them. And it's worth saying as well that this is a very general process that Jesus outlines. We've already seen that he makes it clear there will be specific contexts where other wisdom applies. You have to see it in the context of everything that Jesus says about how we speak to one another. So he has other things to say about kind of nitpicking about sawdust. Um, you know, this general process is not for tiny little things that ought to be let go. And, and, and therefore it's helpful to see that there, probably, that there may well be other things where you can't just apply this process rigidly. And again, wisdom that comes from taking God's word as a whole is really important. Rather than just focusing on these verses and saying, right, here's the process we must do every time. So think about if the person who has done wrong is in a great position of power, for example, over the person who is thinking about speaking to them. Even perhaps if the person that's done something wrong has done that person great harm. You know, this very general process might need some variation in that context. And we get that because of the way the whole of God's word speaks about the way that we relate to each other. You know, so if there's a good reason to say, I, I, I can't see this person alone by myself at the start of this process because I'm frightened or... Uh, something like that, it, you know, it may then be appropriate to start with taking one or two along and to say, look, there, there is a really serious thing that needs to be addressed here. And actually, you know, we spoke last week, if you were here, about safeguarding. And uh, this is exactly the kind of thing where we might need to think about th those kind of issues. There are people that we can and must involve in situations where there might be some kind of abuse going on, for example. So you can't just focus in on these verses and say, right, here's the thing you must do. Well, you know, you need to take God's word as a whole and be wise. But the principle that Jesus is giving here is all along to involve only as many people as are necessary. Only as many people as are necessary. So going from one to one and only if they don't listen or as we've concluded, only if there are other compelling reasons do we move to the next stage, which is to take a couple of witnesses. Now, these seem to be witnesses not of the original wrong, but witnesses of you speaking to the person about the sin. And it's at this stage that those witnesses can be a helpful 
check and balance on whether we're seeing things clearly. Maybe the reason the person isn't listening is because we've got it wrong and not them. The witnesses will help with that. And, and, and being like a little one, as we saw last week, means having the humility to see when we might have got it wrong. That's why it's good to take a couple of people with you. Have you, you know, are you seeing this clearly? Are you seeing this straight? But the implication again is if they listen, relationships can be restored. And if they don't, verse 17, take it to the church. Now that means kind of refer it up. Up to this point, you know, there may have been no church leaders involved until this point. But now they get involved. And it's at this point that we hear that final slightly shocking step. If still no joy, treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. Now, you probably know there are cults, aren't there, that will, are kind of especially known for engaging in a kind of rigid shunning of people who don't measure up in whatever way. Is that the kind of thing that Jesus means here? Well, no, it isn't, but it can't be, because remember, the goal is always reconciliation. The goal is always restoring relationships. But this is saying it may be necessary to say, actually, we can't keep involving you fully in the life of the church because this is a serious sin which is going to harm your relationship with God. But when he says, treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector, how did Jesus treat pagans and tax collectors? That's the question, isn't it? Well, not by kind of shunning them and saying, I'm having nothing to do with you. But by loving them. Now, the way that Jesus loved pagans and tax collectors always stops short of condoning their sin. And that's the point, isn't it? But he still loved them radically as people and even in ways that the world around him hated and didn't understand. So you never say, again, unless, unless there are kind of clear reasons of you know, what we would today call safeguarding issues of you know, putting people at risk of real harm by their presence, you never say, you're not welcome here. But we also say, we love you too much to pretend that this sin is not dangerous for you. Do you see? And you can say both of these things at the same time and then be true. And we say that because, you know, if a child is playing in the middle of the road, then, you know, at that point saying, oh, it's all fine, don't worry. You play in the middle of the road if you want to. Oh, it's lovely. You know, that's not loving, is it? Actually, that, that's cruel if we do that. And Jesus is telling his people, if you want to reflect the kind of love that God has for sinners, you will do anything to go after the one who has got lost. But telling the one who's got lost that everything's fine and they're not really lost isn't loving them. It's not restoring them. It's not bringing them home. Do you see, that is the process then that he's giving us. It involves both clarity and compassion. And whether we're prepared to follow this kind of slightly awkward, slightly non-British, slightly uncomfortable 
process will reveal a lot about our overall attitude to God and to one another. Because if what is actually driving our participation in church and God's people is really just wanting to be comfortable, just you know, want to be mildly entertained and so on, well we'll, well, we'll never do this kind of thing, will we? Love of comfort and pride and fear in our hearts will stop us from doing this every single time. But love of God and love of God's people, because we know how much he loves us, will get us having even the hardest conversations. So that is the process, alone with others with the church. And then finally, with all this comes the promise. There am I with them. Now this whole process that Jesus describes is not easy, as we've seen. We can't do it on our own. And that is what verses 18 to 20 are about. So verses 18 to 20, if you look at them again, well, they're often verses that we read out of this context, as it were. We just, we just look at them and forget where they come in Matthew's gospel. And so we look at them and think, oh, this is what you say. You know that, that kind of slightly awkward situation where only a couple of people turn up to the prayer meeting? You know, and we get this verse out, we say, it's okay, it's okay, because whenever two or three gather together, there am I with them, so let's, let's carry on. Now, that's wonderfully true. And praise the Lord that even two or three gathering together is, is worth doing. But is it exactly why Matthew said that here? What about the verse before that, verse 19? There's an apparently rather grand promise about what happens when we agree about something. If we agree about something, God will give it to us, it says. So, okay, should we get together? Let's agree. What do we want? Should we both agree on a car? Okay, let's say that. God will give it to us. That's what the verse says. Is it? Well, Matthew, the gospel writer, is not a collector of random, unconnected sayings of Jesus. Um, he's a very careful compiler. We've already noticed that in, in the sense of how he's put his gospel together. Things follow on, run, you know, one thing to the next, and it, it makes sense. I mean, it may not be obvious immediately when we read it, but you start to look for repeated words and phrases as you go through, and you start to realize this is very carefully compiled not just randomly thrown together. And so it makes us think, okay, let's just take a step back and think, well, why is this here? What has this got to do with what we've just heard in verses 15 to 17? That's the question to ask. And, and indeed with what then follows afterwards. But, well, verses 15 to 17 are about restoring relationships. We're going to see next time, verses 21 to 35, are also about restoring relationships through forgiving one another. Okay, so what then verses 18 to 20 in the middle about? Well, they're most likely still about restoring relationships, aren't they? Because that's what's going on here, about relationships in the community. Okay, well, let's see how that works then. What we've got is, um, if, you, if you look, you're going to have to sort of focus in with me, follow, follow what I'm saying. Verse 18, we've got a bit about binding and loosing which is a bit hard to, to make out. Uh, we'll come back to that. Verse 19, we, we've, got, uh, the, 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 we've got the word again at the beginning, as in the first word of the verse is the word again, which means that verse 19 might help us explain verse 18. Maybe he's saying what he's saying in verse 18 in a different way. Okay, that's helpful. We can come back to that. 
Uh, so that means that the binding and loosening might have something to do with prayer. Okay. Verse 20 begins with the word for. So that's saying verse 20 is going to be explaining why verses 18 and 19 are true. Okay, well, let's work backwards then. So you need to know God is with you. We understand verse 20, don't we? We get that. For where two or three gather in my name, there am I with them. Okay, you need to know God is with you. But again, in the context, what are the two or three? Uh, it's not the faithful who've bothered to turn up to a prayer meeting, actually, is it? It's presumably the two or three who met together in verses 16 and 17 in relation to the sin of a brother or sister. So as you're making these really difficult decisions and kind of thinking, what are we going to do and how's this going to work? You, you need to know God is with you. This is a God thing. When believers have these hard but important conversations out of love. Okay, well then work back. So that's what verse 20 is. What's it explaining? Well, verse 19. What might two of you on earth be trying to agree about? Not a car, but presumably whatever the issue is that you've fallen out about. Or, which, or, or the issue that one is challenging the other about. That'll be what you need to agree about in this context, won't it? So this is saying reconciliation matters. When believers agree and reconcile and one is won over by the other, there is rejoicing. God is involved. He's there in the reconciliation. It turns out it's his work. It's done by him, verse 19. It feels like it's us. You know, it feels like it's all down to us to kind of make everything right. But no, you need to know God is with you in that. And he is building the bridges again and doing the reconciling through this work that you are working hard to do. And that, in turn, then explains verse 18, about the binding and loosening. Now, the language is subtle here. It's the second time Jesus has used this phrase. He did the same thing back in chapter 16, when Jesus says he's building his church on Peter, and he makes the same promise to him then. And literally what it says is whatever you bind on earth will have been bound in heaven. You can see, can you see there's a little footnote there? Footnote E just tells you the translators are alerting you to that. They, they, they've smoothed it over because they think it sounds better, I think, as well they put that. But they're just alerting you to what it literally says in the, in the footnote. Will have been bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will have been loosed in heaven. So what is this, what is, put all this together in the light of what we've seen verses 19 and 20 are about. Well, it's not saying we get to twist God's arm about these matters. It's saying that what you do on earth in terms of winning people over and restoring relationships or else, you know, reaching a point where you have to say we can't pretend everything is fine in your involvement with the church family. You know, whatever you get to, that is binding or loosening. But he says the binding or loosening that you do on earth in having these hard conversations and reaching these hard conclusions, whatever you do on earth will turn out to be what God has already done and decided in heaven. Do you see? Will have been. In other words, this isn't about God just sort of endorsing what we do, but about God guiding what we do. Because what we do is we pray and we take these things seriously that Jesus has told us to do. It turns out God is going ahead of us. And he's already done it, as it were. He's already brought it about. 
It's not about us twisting God's arm. It's about us trusting God to work through our feeble efforts to love one another, to love the one going astray, to love the little one, trusting God to work through these efforts to restore relationships. What is he saying? He's saying he promises to be with us in this hard but rewarding activity. Remember what Jesus has said back in chapter 16? He says, I will build my church. The gates of Hades will not prevail against it. Christians falling out with each other and and Christians going astray, that won't stop it. That's the promise. Well, I know for myself, there have been times when someone's come to me and said, you know, that thing that you said, was it, was it really that true and helpful, necessary, kind? As a young Christian, a, a leader very gently said to me, you know, that relationship that you're in with a non-Christian, is that going to help you grow in faith in the months and years to come? Feedback, challenge, whatever you want to call it, is never easy to hear. But if I'm honest, and I'm sure others would say the same, if I'm honest, what I'm, gr- I'm grateful for when people have pulled me up on something in love with the intention of restoring relationships in whatever way. Now, if it, if it appears to come across as kind of finger-wagging, I'm just having a go at you, well, no, that's, that's hard to hear, isn't it? And that's understandable. But when these things are communicated in the spirit of loving restoration, how can that not be? helpful for us all to hear see when we do that it's a win-win situation on the other side of pain and awkwardness and sadness comes joy and life and growth that is the resurrection pattern that Jesus set we go through death to new life you see, we do that through these difficult conversations. We think, oh, I don't want to have this conversation, but on the other side of that difficult conversation is new life and new start. And so a lot of the time when we try and put this into practice, it actually it stops at stage one, doesn't it? You know, we fear, where's this going to go? Well, no, often and usually it's enough just to say, oh, you know, have you thought about this? What's going on here? And we listen, maybe we apologise, and not in the British flippant sense of just using that word sorry. Not I'm sorry if I've hurt you, but I'm sorry that I've hurt you. I'm sorry that I did that. And it's about owning our sin, it's about acknowledging maybe hurt that's been caused, the consequences of that, the impact of that. Again, not just retreating into what my motives were, but acknowledging what the impact of what has happened has been. And then through that, claiming and applying God's forgiveness to each other, committing to put things right. See, on the other side of that difficult conversation is new life, new start, new growth. That is what Jesus is saying to us here. So get the goal right about restoring relationships get the process right alone with others then with the church and believe the promise 
there am I with them. This is his work. It matters. So let's trust him with it and then let's do it. Let's just pray now. Father God, we know these words are deeply challenging um, and yet they point us to your heart of love for sinners, for the one who's gone astray. We remember those words of Jesus. If a man owns a hundred sheep and one of them wanders away, will he not leave the 99 on the hills and go to look for the one that wandered off? And if he finds it, truly I tell you, he is happier about that one sheep than about the 99 that did not wander off. And so, Heavenly Father, might we have that same love for one another so that we're able to speak words of loving correction when we need to. With the goal of restoring and deepening relationships. We pray and commit ourselves to you in Jesus' name. Amen.